Excuse me a minute. I don't often have to do this <laughs> at my height, but. Okay. Whoops. Sorry. Now we're all set. It was a very striking reading, wasn't it, we've just had. Jesus spending a whole night in prayer before choosing his disciples. And then we see that he comes down and there's a big level place and there's a large crowd gathers around. They're from the area around Galilee, but also from much further afield and right up in the coastal area in Tyre and Sidon. Some have come from the south, from Jerusalem and Judea. Jesus was now well known and people wanted to hear him. And these people came to listen, but they also came to be healed. Large crowd. Some of the people were his disciples already. They were people who had heard him and had come to believe on him and were his followers. Others were just a, a crowd of people that have heard about him, people who were sick, people wanted healing, all kinds. And then we read that he called his disciples specifically. He began to speak not just to the twelve, but the disciples in the crowd too. And he said four times, you are blessed if, and he had four occasions, and if you're in the know, you know that we call these Beatitudes. Uh, there were four of them. And then uh, he was saying, who was truly happy? Who was really blessed? Who are the people to be envied in this life? Who are the people to be congratulated? Blessed are the and so he says that four times. And then it's followed four times by four woes, the opposite of being blessed. People for whom there was trouble ahead. Bad prospects. Woe. Alas. How terrible. So you've got these contrasts. Four times he says, blessed are you. And four times he has woe. And this teaching of Jesus is remarkable because it is the opposite of what is usually understood uh, to be good. It was the opposite of what people would have expected. Now, if you're, if you're fairly new and you're not too familiar with the Bible, you can switch off just for a minute, okay? Don't go to sleep, but... Uh, People look at this and they look at the Gospel of Matthew. And they say, well, in Matthew we have the Sermon on the Mount. And here, well, what is this? Because, well, there are similarities here. Both sermons are addressed to disciples. Both begin with these Beatitudes. 
And they conclude with the same parables or stories, especially the one about building a house upon the rock and not upon the sand. And, uh, well, maybe, maybe this is the same incident. And, uh, well, Jesus comes down off of the high part of the mountain onto a level place, but even mountains have level places on them. So uh, it, uh, it could be the same. But there are differences. In Matthew, there are seven Beatitudes, plus a reference to persecution. In Luke, only three, plus the reference to persecution. Matthew has no list of woes. But we need to think that Jesus spent his time traveling around villages and towns teaching, and he would have repeated himself many times over. He wanted people to understand. He would have been a very bad teacher if he'd not repeated himself. And uh, it could well be that these were different occasions. But the expert tell us uh, they're probably two different reports of the same occasion, and each writer is writing from his point of view and wants to bring something out of this particular incident. And especially we can see this if we look at Luke, who wrote his gospel, we believe largely for non-Jews, for Gentiles, and uh, he has omitted all the bits about the Jewish interpretation of the law. That doesn't occur in Luke. Whereas in Matthew, who we believe did write his gospel, especially for Jews, then that comes into play. Well, I think it's important for us just to look at that if you're someone that is familiar with the Bible. But if you're not, now's the time to come back and listen. Okay, here we go. How are we to understand what Jesus is saying? Well, of course, a, a Marxist might read this and say, Ha-ha, this is something to keep the masses happy, isn't it? You're hungry now, but you're going to be filled later on. Life is hard now, and you're weeping, but you were happy and laugh later on. A time is coming when you will be rich. There will be plenty to eat. You will be happy. And the rich and the oppressors, well, they'll be reduced to nothing, and it will be their turn to mourn and grieve. Isn't that just like religion, they would say? Religion. Didn't Mark say the opiate of the people? But only someone who has not read the Gospels could really believe that Jesus was defending the establishment. This means you haven't read it if you take that understanding. Or someone could take exactly the opposite and they would say, look, you can see how revolutionary Jesus is. He's uh, telling his people that the revolution is coming. Your oppressors will be overthrown, and so on. Ah, it will all be wonderful. He's talking about the class struggle. So some people uh, could look at it that way. And to be honest, there are people that like to look, not just at the Bible, but at other texts today, and they, they just take them out of context and make them b uh, mean just what they think they ought to mean. But if we want to understand what Jesus is saying, we must take them in context. For instance, you go to the doctor, you discuss your condition, and the doctor says to you, right, I'm, uh, I'm going to give you some pills. You need to take these one at a time. Take them in the morning and in the evening. Now, you don't go home and say to yourself, I'm going to make sure these really work. 
and I'm going to take three. But I shall take them one at a time, but I shall take three. You, you wouldn't say that. There's a whole context to what the man has said. Mom says to her little boy or little girl, don't talk to anybody on your way home. She doesn't mean you mustn't talk to your friends or you mustn't talk to your teacher if you see your teacher. And the little one knows what mum means. There's a context. So we need to take the words of Jesus in their context, and in particular in the context um, that we are given here. Jesus is talking to a certain kind of people, to those who are his followers, his disciples, people who are in a particular relationship to him already. There were many others around, they were listening, and hopefully they were learning. But the words that he said were not meant for the others, they were meant for his disciples. Okay, so what was the gist of his message? Well, Jesus spoke of four conditions in which people are blessed or happy when they're following him. Blessed are you who are poor? Blessed are you who hunger now? Blessed are you who weep now? And blessed are you when men hate you? In each case, he goes on to explain why that should be. A poor person may be happy because his is the kingdom of God. Jesus' hearers were almost all literally poor Luke has already mentioned that the twelve disciples had left everything and to come to follow Jesus. So Jesus' explanation about their inclusion in the kingdom of God is mentioned because they were following him and he was the one that could bring them into the kingdom. You, my disciples, are poor, but you are blessed because believing on me, you are in God's kingdom. They were staking everything on this, on the truth that believing on Jesus, they were in the kingdom of God. They were following his new way. Now, the words of Jesus are not a promise that every poor person is in the kingdom of God. His words were a statement of fact for the people he was looking at. He says, you're poor. His disciples he's talking to. You are poor now, but you are blessed because you have a part of the kingdom of God. They were a statement of fact for his disciples. They were much better off being poor. He was saying, in effect, following Jesus and having a part in the kingdom of God than being rich and not having a part in the kingdom. That's why they were blessed. That was the first explanation. Then another explanation. And the next two are about the future. He says, the hungry will be satisfied. Those who weep will laugh. The followers of Jesus, those who believed on him and trusted in him, he's saying, may hunger and weep because they followed Jesus, but they would eventually be vindicated for their faith in him. We'll say a bit more about that in a minute. Then comes the final blessed or beatitude. Blessed are you 
when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. By that, of course, he meant himself. This very quickly became true for the twelve disciples and for others. He said they would be truly blessed, people to be envied even, because great is their reward in heaven. Do you remember how it was just a few pages on in the New Testament? The disciples were preaching to the crowd about Jesus and about the resurrection, and the authorities called them in. We told you not to preach anymore in his name, and you're not to do it anymore. And uh, just to help you understand this, we're going to beat you. And they did meet them, just because they preached about Jesus. And what did the disciples do? Having been beaten and forbidden to preach in the name of Jesus, it says, they went out rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. They were following, as Jesus said in our passage, following in the train of the prophets, who were persecuted, God's messengers to his people in the old day. Very often they were chased away, they were persecuted they, because people didn't want to hear what they had to say. And of course even today we know there are people who choose certain death rather than deny the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Jesus is pointing out that in contrast to the disciples there were others. There were others that would refuse to give up things, would refuse to give up anything to follow him. These were the rich, the well-fed, the ones who laughed, the ones who were popular, the powerful, the influential. Do you remember even the story of this uh, rich young man in the ruling class that came to Jesus? And he explained to Jesus how that he was keeping the law and he'd done it ever since he was a young man. But Jesus looked at him and it says he loved him. But he pointed out to him that his wealth was getting in the way. There was something wrong about his attitude to his money and his position. And he said, if you really want to be uh, one of my disciples, you need to sell what you have and follow me. Now, he doesn't say that to everybody, but it was an example of what the leaders were like in that day. There were some who believed on Jesus. We know um, that the names of two of them. But as a general rule, they were in opposition to the Lord Jesus. They didn't understand the gravity of their situation. And so Jesus says, Woe to you! Don't you understand? They refused to follow him who could bring them into the kingdom. And uh, if you remember, the woe that he pronounces is the exact opposite of the blessing for his people. Well, that's a kind of summary of it all, isn't it? What, what does it have to say to us this morning? What, what can we take home about it? Well, you see, the, the, the values and the teaching of Jesus are really a great reversal on what the world thinks 
generally. Uh, the world turned upside down, if you like. We don't talk much about counterculture now, but I, I remember when I was a bit younger and there was all this uh, to do about the Vietnam War and there was flower power and uh, students were demonstrating and all of this thing. Uh, it was often spoken about as a counterculture. It was a whole way of looking at the world which was opposed to the people that were in power. And uh, there was one person that wrote about the Sermon on the Mount and he called his book Christian Counterculture. An outlook that runs contrary to what everyone seems to think. It's a way, a whole different way of thinking and looking at the world. And truly, in Jesus' day, it was considered that the rich and the influential were really the ones that God had blessed. And if you saw them, you'd look to them, you'd like to change places with them. Well, isn't their life so much better? God obviously loves them and likes them, and look what's happening. You'd like to change places with them, but Jesus says, you may be rich, full, and satisfied and happy now, but there is coming a time when you will be the exact opposite. Not because of some social revolution, but because of their refusal to receive his words and to follow him. He even said about that rich young man as he walked away, he said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed. Well, if the rich aren't saved, will anybody be saved, they said. Jesus turns it upside down. It's a great reversal. Of course, the real difficulty is not in wealth, but in the fact that it blinds them to God's word and God's way. The people they thought in those days should be pitied and perhaps looked down upon. Jesus said, they are going to be vindicated. They are my disciples. The Apostle Paul put it like this. Quoting the Old Testament, he says, Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. Jesus himself said in a different context, Come, you blessed ones, by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. God has something special for his people, for those that follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And the attitude of many in Jesus' day was seriously wrong. And of course, with that in mind, we need to ask ourselves, do we, as Christians, have the right values? Do we really believe what Jesus said, that it's better to be poor and a follower of Jesus and in the kingdom of God than to seek after wealth and affluence and be without him. Does being a Christian affect our choices? 
our ambitions. What do we pass on to our children? What view of the world do we give them? What wisdom have we passed on? Do we really believe it's better to have a hard life and even to suffer for the sake of Jesus than to live in comfort for the things of here and now? Now in the Sermon on the Mount, which we referred to earlier, Jesus makes it clear that there's nothing wrong in themselves, in things, everyday things of life. In fact, he said, God knows that you need them. But what he did say was, don't live for them. He said, put God's kingdom first. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I had a friend years ago when I lived in Kenya. And uh, he had a little shack in the local market and he would serve bread and hot tea to people. Uh, A very different culture to ours, of course. Uh, But on his front door where everybody came in, he had this notice, God first. He wasn't boasting, but he was a genuine Christian and this was his way of saying, I want to put God first in my life. So he was a a little businessman, and he made his living by baking bread and selling it in the local market. Very small time, but he was a progressive man. But he was also known as the God-first man. So do we as Christians have the right values? Then another thing that stands out from this little episode is that the prevailing outlook is not necessarily right. Ah, You see the uh, film, The Madness of King George? And do you see the way they treated George III? Well, they they thought that was the right way to do things, the best, best they knew. I don't think we would do it now. You see, uh, I'm sure you've seen some of the large institutions that the Victorians built and they shut up people in those institutions who were mentally ill. And often once you got in them, you never had a chance to get out, whatever happened. That was thought the way to deal with people in those days. Hmm? I think we know a little differently today. Hmm? The prevailing view may be wrong. This is what Jesus is pointing out to people as he was teaching. We absorb the prevailing view of life from the time we are very, very small. It's in our family. We learn it from our parents. And then uh, we learn it from school. And then we go out to work and we learn it from our friends. There's no effort involved in it. It just comes to us. The influence is all around us. What's good? What's sensible to aim at? What's desirable? What's valuable? It's, It's in the air we breathe really, isn't it? It's in, uh, on the TV, on the radio, in our newspapers, in novels, magazines, health, wealth, 
family and friends, enjoyment, excitement, achievement. Yes, they all have their place, but these are the good things. These are the supreme things. So young people say, oh, to be a pop star. Oh, to play in the Premier Division. Oh, to do this. Oh, to do that. Sometimes they have quite laudable ambitions. Everybody knows how to recognize a successful person, don't they? That's the general culture, that's the wisdom, that's the prevailing wisdom of our world. Another part of it is, is don't get too serious about religion. I remember as a, a young man, I was working with a, a fellow and we got very friendly and I invited him to come along to church. And sure enough, he came. And he met me outside and he said, I've been talking to my father. And he said, my father said I shouldn't really get, it's not good to get too involved in religion. I don't think I'm going to come. That's the wisdom of many today, isn't it? Everybody used to know how to treat the mentally ill and they were wrong. Don't necessarily follow the wisdom of today. Don't hide behind what everybody says, what everybody knows. Everybody may be wrong. God's ways, God's values are very different to ours. And we must test our views against the words of Jesus. So that's another thing that stands out here. We need to See whether as Christians we have the right view of life and so on. We need to recognize too, whoever we are, that the prevailing view of life, what everybody thinks, is not necessarily right in the eyes of God. And there's something else really right on the surface of this story. I don't know whether you noticed it. Sometimes we take it for granted. But the words of Jesus clearly indicate that this life is not all there is. Jesus is contrasting the present and the future. He says, you may be hungry now, but you shall, in the future, you shall be satisfied. You shall laugh. Then he says, great is your reward. And he adds the words, in heaven. Similarly, when he's pronouncing the woes, he is using the future tense about what is going to happen. To the persecuted, he says, great is your reward in heaven. That is what follows this present life. Jesus, in this passage, takes for granted that there is a life to come. And whether we are truly blessed or not, doesn't depend upon our status in this present life, but how we will, uh, but how our attitude to Jesus and His Word will determine how we shall be in the life to come. If we leave the future, the life to come, out of consideration, we're in trouble, according to Jesus. Now, the world around us today would tell us that's nonsense. The accepted wisdom for many is that this life is all. 
You know what life is about? Well, it's the things that you can touch and handle, feel, all these things. But uh, talk about a life to come? No, that's nonsense. When you're dead, you're dead, you're dead and gone, finished. Or, say some people, if there is a God, he's not really relevant to life now. They may not be theoretical atheists, <laughs> but they are practical atheists who live as if God didn't exist. Or if there is a God, well, he's kind, isn't he? He's going to welcome everybody, except the really bad people, of course, but uh, generally speaking. This is the accepted wisdom. And God tells us, Jesus tells us, we need a different wisdom. We need to listen to him. It's a great reversal. The people who are really blessed, the people who you should really envy, are the ones that Jesus calls blessed. Don't listen to what everybody says. Listen to the words of Jesus. The really blessed people are those who hear his words and follow his way. The really blessed people are those who follow Jesus as their Lord.